Titus chapter 3. It says this. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. As soon as, as soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me greets, sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So here we come to the end of the book of Titus. And we've already covered kind of the greeting of the letter, how Paul sees himself, how he views God, and how he views Titus, who he's writing to. In chapter one, we looked at the kind of appointing good elders and avoiding bad teachers and, and opposing those, those bad teachers in the church in Crete. And then last week in chapter two, we looked at right living within the church um, as a product of the grace of God. And so we, we remember we said that it read that teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then it also got into kind of the depths of what is the sound doctrine, the depths of the gospel that motivates that godly living. And kind of the theme we've been looking at throughout the book of Titus comes from uh, verse uh, 1 of chapter 1 that calls it the truth that leads to godliness. And how the truth of the gospel, the truth of the sound doctrine, leads to godly living and godly lives. And we saw that in in both chapter 1 and chapter 2. In chapter 1, for the elders, it said he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message. And that that produced those godly characteristics in the elders. And then in contrast with the false teachers, it talked about, it described them as those who reject the truth. And out of that flowed all kinds of ungodly living. And so that they were unfit for any good work. In chapter 2, it said teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then it also said that the grace of God teaches us to live godly and upright lives. And chapter 3 is no different. Chapter 3, and this is frequent throughout Paul's letters, we have a list of ethical commands followed by the theological or the the doctrinal grounding reasons for that sort of living. And our passage starts with the phrase, remind the people. And in some ways, this is actually, this word remind is 
is characteristic of the whole chapter because there's not a whole lot new that's offered here. There's not a new teaching to either the Cretans and, and the Christians in Crete or really even in some ways to the book of Titus. There's a lot of recap. There's a lot of going back and revisiting things. And so there's a lot of reminding going on here. And so kind of where we're going to go is we're going to look at all the reminders in this passage. Firstly, Paul is reminding the believers how to live in relation to non-believers in the first two verses. Then in verse 3, he's reminding the believers of their unregenerate, their unsaved state. Then reminding the believers of God's saving work in verses 4 through 7. Reminding Titus of his task, what he's specifically supposed to do in Crete in verses 8 through 11. And then to close the chapter, Paul reminds Titus of his care for him. So first, reminding the believers how to live in relationship to outsiders. It says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. It starts with, again, remind the people. So again, this isn't a new teaching. And reminders, there's, there's something that we can learn about the fact that he's saying remind, and he's giving Titus, or he's telling Titus to remind the people, to give them a reminder. You see, reminders we give for a couple reasons. One is important things. Uh, you don't remind someone typically of something that's insignificant or unimportant. Um, you don't maybe remind them what you ate for lunch yesterday, unless that has some relevance or importance to the current conversation or the things that are going on. And it's important things that get reminders. We also don't give reminders for things that are kind of automatic or easy to remember or easy to do. I I don't remind you to breathe. Um, It's just something that naturally happens. You just do it. You don't have to think about it. You don't need a reminder for that. Or I don't remind your heart to beat. Um, Or for many people, you don't need a reminder to eat, right? Your your stomach does that job for you. Um, But things that we do have reminders for, deadlines, important deadlines, whether it's a project at work or maybe a bill that needs to be paid. We have reminders for those because it's important that we meet those deadlines. Um, important meetings or tasks to do as well. We might set reminders for, we might have, ask someone to remind us. You might receive a notification from the company or your friend or spouse or whatever it might be. And so the fact that he's saying remind the people to do these things means that these things are important, but then they're also things that don't necessarily come naturally to us. They're things that aren't necessarily the easiest to do all the time. And reminders are common throughout scripture. I mean, throughout the Bible, you'll see the same themes and teachings repeated from Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between because of our tendency to forget. And this is true of Israel in the Old Testament and also still of us today. In the Old Testament, Israel's, their, their law was just chock full of reminders. They had different festivals and ceremonies holy days. They even would build altars and memorial structures to remember things that God had done. And yet time and time again, we still see them forgetting what God had done in his deliverance. One example is in Psalm 106, where the psalmist recounts, our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. And then it continues, but they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. And even in the new covenant, God's people, Jesus, when he's talking about the Holy Spirit, he says that the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance all that I have taught you because of our tendency to forget. 
Even last week as we uh, took the Lord's Supper, as we took communion, right, we recite the passage where it says, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. We gather and we regularly partake of the Lord's Supper together to remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us in his death on the cross. The reminder here in Titus 3 is a reminder for how to live before outsiders, before non-believers specifically. We talked about kind of godly living for elders, godly living just among Christians in general, and old men, younger women, and everyone in between. Um, But here it's specifically focused on how do we live and interact and treat those who are not believers, who are different from us, and even maybe very far from believers, and maybe very wicked non-believers included. And the first thing is remind the people, he says, to be subject to rulers and authorities. To be subject to the rulers and authorities is to acknowledge their God-given authority. You see, our primary duty as human beings is to be subject to God, the creator of the universe, the king of kings, the lord of lords. But God, in his complete sovereignty, has decided to give some authority to earthly rulers and governments. Romans chapter 13 is perhaps the most well-known verse that talks about this, um, this truth of what God has done, does through governing authorities. It says, everyone must submit themselves to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. And so there it acknowledges God is the sole authority over all. And then it continues, the authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. And so there's this reality painted that to refuse being subject and honoring to worldly leaders and rulers is to refuse subjection to the heavenly ruler as well. Now the question always arises, what about the bad ones? Or what about rulers who aren't very good? And the reality is that's probably most of them. They all fall short of the glory of God. And when they have power, that becomes even more clear. But this still applies. But it applies, remember, in the context of subjection to God above all, that he is the ultimate authority. And so we do continue to subject ourselves and be obedient and honoring to earthly rulers, even not the good ones, so long as they aren't asking and demanding that we remove ourselves from subjection to the God of the universe. You could think of the old, prime Old Testament example would be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace with Nebuchadnezzar. He built the golden idol, and they had apparently been subject to him because they were well-respected officials within the government of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar builds the idol, and he says to bow down to it. And they said, we will not do that. Or Jesus, even, when he... That didn't sound good. Um... <laughs> Jesus, when he was before Pilate, he had this interesting dynamic where he actually have the king of the universe, the ruler of all, standing before someone who's actually in reality subject to him. And yet Jesus, in his humanity and the flesh that he took on, Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And he says, you could do nothing to me unless that authority had been given to you. And so he's acknowledging that truth, and yet what does he do? He still subjects himself himself to Pilate's rule. And Pilate sentences him to death, and he complies with it.
Secondly, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. And when we say to be obedient, the, the main question is to whom? To whom are we supposed to be obedient? Is it God? Is it still the governing authorities that's talking about? Or is it even more broad? Remember, there was a passage about slaves and masters earlier. I think it, it could be all of the above. I mean, in the immediate context, it is, had just talked about um, governing authorities. And so I think that still naturally would be in view. To being subject to them is being obedient to them. But I think also to God. And here's why. Because if we are obedient to God, we will be obedient to those he has placed in authority over us. If he is our primary authority. Now, if earthly governments or earthly rulers are our primary allegiance, whether it's a ruler, whether it's a political party, whatever it might be, that doesn't necessarily mean that we will be obedient to God. So you see, obedience to God does translate to being obedient to earthly authorities, but being obedient to earthly authorities does not necessarily mean that we will be obedient to God. So I think by being obedient to God, we can ensure that we are obedient to both. Thirdly, Remind the people to be ready to do whatever is good. Now, one of the roles of governing authorities um, that First Peter articulates is that they are sent by God to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And so in, in the ideal world, in the, the main purpose of what they do is to punish evil and to reward good. And so in subjection to rulers and authorities, we ought to be eager to, be, to do what is good, to be ready to do good. Our, our obedience to earthly rulers, and therefore our obedience to God ought to be marked by a readiness to do good. And again, similarly with reminder, to be ready for something, you have to be ready for something that's difficult. You ready yourself for something that doesn't come naturally to do. A runner has to ready himself for a race, so he trains, and he builds up the stamina and endurance to be able to do that. A student readies themselves for an exam because they don't naturally have the knowledge of that subject or that topic, so they have to study, they have to get ready so that they can perform well and do the task at hand. And so doing whatever is good does not come naturally to us, and we talked about some about this last week, of our tendency to do wickedness. And so a readiness to do whatever is good requires thought, requires preparation, requires prayer, and submitting ourselves to the Lord and his will. There's also a readiness, though, when it relates to the governing authorities. Because sometimes the governing authorities might ask us to do something we really don't want to do. Now, it might not be something that's sinful. It might be, I don't want to pay, right? pretty much most of us, right? I don't want to pay that much in taxes. <laughs> um, but are we ready to be obedient and subject to that? But then there's the flip side of they might ask us to do something that is not obedient to God. And that requires readiness. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'm sure, had to ready themselves for that moment of standing before Nebuchadnezzar and saying, no, we won't do that. Because it would have been a lot easier in that moment when everyone else is bowing down to the idol to just do it. Who's going to see it? Who's going to notice? And there were other Jews around, I'm sure, when yet it was those three who refused to do it. There's a difficulty there. And yet, in that, there was still a subjection to the governing authorities, because in their response, if you read it, they say, Nebuchadnezzar, we know that our God is able to save us from the fire that you're going to throw us in. But they say, but even if he does not, we want you to know we don't regret our decision. And so what they're doing is they're saying, I, we are going to subject ourselves to you. We're going to subject ourselves to God and to you by saying, look, if, the, if obeying God means we die, 
we are ready to do it. So there's a readiness to do whatever is good, even when it's difficult. Fourthly, remind the people to slander no one. Now it says no one, and so it is clearly now at this point, if it hasn't already, been expanding it beyond just governing authorities, rulers, things like that, to all people. And yet I think it's important for us to notice, especially in our context, that no one still also includes the governing authorities. We might scratch our heads a lot of times at why the people in authority above us are doing things they're doing or saying things that they're saying. And yet there's still a command to not slander, to not speak evil of them. Now it doesn't mean we can't disagree, right? Jesus clearly disagreed with things Pilate did. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego clearly disagreed with Nebuchadnezzar about building this idol and about the myriad of other things he was doing. It doesn't mean we can't call for them to repent and to change. But it does, there is a difference of slander, of speaking evil, of mocking those who deserve honor and respect, even if they're doing a terrible job. To slander no one. Someone cannot be a faithful, God-fearing Christian who slanders those whom God has appointed for his purposes. But again, it's no one. It extends beyond that. Not even, not personal enemies. Jesus said, love your enemies, not slander them. Not even the most wicked people you know. Now again, it doesn't mean turning a blind eye to it, but it does mean to not speak evilly, evil and mock and tear down. Not even false teachers. Remember in chapter one, um, Paul said to Titus, rebuke them sharply. And yet he said, so that they would return to the sound faith. And so even in the sharp rebuking, even in the disagreement, even in the opposing, there's room for that, yet without mocking and slandering and speaking evil of them. Fifth, remind the people to be peaceable and considerate. Now, the, wor- the word here that's translated in the Pew Bibles, be peaceable, is actually a negative command. It actually says, means more so not quarrelsome not argumentative, not looking for a fight. And so it's a negative command, which the positive end of that is be considerate or to be peaceable. And then it secondly says to be considerate, which is also sometimes rendered gentle. You see, sometimes, especially when we talk about authority, when we talk about interacting with those who think differently than us, there can be a tendency to kind of look for a fight kind of look for an argument to win, to push ourselves up. But here he says, no, don't be looking for a fight, be, fight, be peaceable, be considerate to others. It's a mindset of how we approach our interactions with others. Do I, do I approach someone, even someone who's entirely different from me, who thinks very differently from me, who maybe even hates Christianity wholesale? Is my attitude when I approach them and interact with them still, I want peace, I want gentleness, or is it, man, I really want to win this fight. I want to stir things up. I want to, I want to show, I want to kind of shake things up and show how right I am and how wrong they are. And then lastly, remind the people to show true humility toward all men. And I think this last one kind of captures the heart and the spirit of all the others in these first two verses. The word there for show true humility is, all, is, is also the word for all. And so you could read it as show all humility toward all men. It's clearly all-encompassing. There's no qualifications here. There's not even the slightest sliver of space 
for pride in the life of a Christian. So like Paul says in Galatians 6, but far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this, as we continue to look at the why for these commands, we will explore more of this all humility towards all men. But we have to recognize that that is significant. All men, even the worst of the worst. Think in your mind of someone, it could be someone you know personally, or even someone you've seen in the news, um, or something you've, you've heard about. The worst per- person you disdain the most. Person who you think is the furthest away from Christ. The most horrific example of sinfulness. And think of your posture towards that person. Does humility characterize it? Now again, I'm not saying that you say, oh, what they're doing is totally fine or it doesn't matter. Or ignore the fact that they might have done some terrible, terrible things. But is there humility in your heart when you compare yourself with them? Or is there pride? Is there a looking down on them or a seeing of your own sinfulness? Because that's where Paul goes next. Verse 3. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. The beginning of verse 3 is actually a word there, for, or because. What's happening here in verse 3 and all the way through verse 7, again, is Paul is giving the reason why Christians should have all humility towards all men. And the first one is because we're no different than even the worst of them. For we ourselves, we too, were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. What I want to notice here is both the objective and the subjective nature of sin. What I mean by that is notice how in verse 3 it characterizes us as both those who do the sinning and perpetrate the sin, and yet also those who are under the control, and in some ways, though I use this word loosely, victims of sin. It says we were foolish and disobedient. Those are things we did, we embraced, we perpetrated. Foolishness and disobedience. And yet also says we were deceived and enslaved. Those are things that are done upon us. Sin deceived us, and yet we also sinned. It says living in malice and envy. That's active. That's objective. We're the objects of that. We are doing the malicious and envious living. But then it goes back and says being hated. That's something that's being done to us. But then just as quickly, it turns back around and says and hating one another. The EFCA statement of faith, uh, point number three, captures this when it, it reads this way. In union with Adam, human beings are sinners by nature and by choice alienated from God and under his wrath. Sinners by nature, that's the subjective, and by choice, the object of what we are doing. Consider how this paints our sinfulness and how pathetically this makes us look in our sinful state. Sin is self-destructive. 
we are being hated, and yet our response is to hate right back, to further the cycle. We are foolish and disobedient and enslaved and deceived. We're doing the very things that are taking advantage of us. You see, there's kind of two views of sin sometimes. One is that is kind of sin as a disease. This, I can't help it. I can't help what I do. Um, that's right more the, the enslaved, deceived. I can't help what, but what happens to me. These things that happen to me produce these bad things, and I don't have any choice in the matter. But then you have the opposite view of um, sin as merely choice. Well, he could have said no if he didn't want to do that. But what we see here is it's actually both. And that's actually all the more disturbing because we love to do the very thing which enslaves us. We are infatuated with that which controls us and destroys us. Proverbs 26 paints a picture of a dog that returns to his vomit. And that's the picture we get of sin in this passage. It's disgusting. It traps us. It deceives us. It does nothing good for us, and yet we love it, and we can't help but get out of it. That's what we were at one time. See, nothing breeds humility towards non-believers, even the worst of them, like remembering who you were and who you would continue to be had God not graciously intervened in your life. And that's where Paul goes next. Before I do, I just want to share an example of this in my own life. Growing up, and even well into my college years, and in different ways today, I struggled with, with lust and different addictions that entrap so many young men today, and older men as well. And it's been a journey of me recovering and His grace training me and transforming me in that. And earlier this summer, when we were in Boston, we were walking down the street, and there were these two young women who were dressed in, in not much clothing walking in front of us. And I was, with every fiber of my being, trying to be faithful and to not look and to look in places that would, would be honoring to God around my surroundings. And up coming the other way walks another man. And as he walks and passes these two young women, he makes a very obvious stare and gawking at them. And my instinct was rage and judgment. How could he do such a thing? And yet then I remembered, only by God's grace was I fighting with every fiber in my being to not do the same. And if it weren't for his grace, I would be no better. That changed how I looked at that man. And it brought humility rather than pride into my heart and a gratefulness for God's grace which is what we read about next. So after all of this horrific depiction of sin, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Again, not new. 
a reminder. This is the gospel. This is, if they're Christians, and certainly Titus was as well, this is not new, but an important reminder. He's reminding the believers of God's saving work. I want to note the following things that he reminds them about God's salvation of us. First, God saving us was marked by kindness and love. Verse 4 reads, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. See, God does not save reluctantly, but eagerly. He's not like, oh, I guess I guess I got to do this and save them. I guess I'll, you know, throw some magic dust on it and just do the bare minimum to get through. No, he does it out of kindness and love. He's eager to save. And he also doesn't do it with grandstanding. of like, look at me, I'm coming and saving you, you filthy sinners, and you ought to feel ashamed of yourselves. No, he comes and does it with care and kindness towards us. Zephaniah, one of the minor prophets, has a, a verse, a passage, that I think captures God's delight and his eagerness and love and kindness in saving us. Zephaniah 3.17 says, he's speaking to Israel, to, to God's people. He says, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Those aren't the words of a reluctant Savior. Those are the words of a Savior who's eager with loving kindness to save us. Do you believe that, even in your worst moments, that God delights to save you? Or do you think he's just doing his mere duty that he has to do? Because he doesn't have to do it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. Secondly, he saved us because of his mercy, not our righteousness. Verse 5, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. This proves my point for why we need reminders. It was not two verses ago that Paul just gave a terribly wicked depiction of our sinful condition. And yet he puts this in here, anticipating that even right after that, our tendency might be to forget and say, well, maybe he saved me because of something I did. Because some righteous thing I did. That's why he saved me, because I had faith, because I believed, because I wasn't as bad as this other person. So quickly, he knows that's our tendency, that he says, no, it's not because of anything righteous you had done, because you did nothing righteous. But because of his mercy. The cause of our salvation was his mercy. His nature, who he is, not anything of who we were, because there's nothing in verse 3 that's worth saving. And that leads to the next part. He saved us, the second half of chapter 5, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. One cannot become clean by bathing in mud or scrubbing themselves with dirt. We cannot save ourselves. There's nothing worth saving in chapter 3, and if there's nothing worth saving, there's nothing that can save. There's not, if it's just dirt, there's nothing to clean with. Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, Jesus tells him that you must be born again to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus scratches his head and he says, well, how does that work? How, how, how am I supposed to climb back into my mother's womb and be born again? And right, so we see already his tendency for like, okay, 
well, how can I do it? If I need to be reborn, how can I rebirth myself? And Jesus' response is, no, 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 you don't get it. And what Jesus does is he begins talking about the Holy Spirit. That regeneration, that salvation is something that begins with the Holy Spirit cleansing and renewing us, not us taking a shower. It's the blood of Christ that washes us whiter than snow. We talked last time about it's the heart of flesh. The heart of stone needs to be replaced with the heart of flesh. A heart of stone can't do that to itself. I also just want to note here the, the entire trinity in salvation in verses 5 and 6. When it says he saved us, it's talking about our, the Father. Because it's God our Savior appeared. He saved us. God the Father. He saved us through the washing, rebirth, and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So now you have the Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The whole Trinity is involved in saving us. The Father saves us by washing us through the Spirit, whom he sends through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And both Christ and the Father are called our Savior, and the Holy Spirit by implication as well. Last thing to note here is, it says, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. God doesn't just tweak us. It's like, oh, there's just a, you know, a, a loose wheel here. Just need to tighten it up, tweak it. No, it's a rebirth. It's a redoing of the origin of us, of our nature. It's a renewal. It's a refreshing. And so he pours out his spirit generously to do this work. Not just a little bit, but lavishly. So Hebrews 7 says that he saves us to the uttermost. I believe that there was an allusion to that passage in our hymn this morning as well. Or Ephesians 1.8, it says, We are redeemed by the blood. It says, According to the riches, riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Again, God is eager and lavish and generous in his saving us and his renewing of us. Fourthly, his saving work blesses us immensely. It says, so that, he saved us, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. I want you to stop and consider the contrast here with verse 3 and verse 7. Verse 3 said, we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We were malicious, envious, Hated and hating each other. And then here it says, so we might become heirs of eternal life. Sons of God. Nothing worth saving in verse 3. And now, heirs of God? Inheriting eternal life? Where none of this stuff in verse 3 is true? Or we're not hated at all, but loved deeply and eternally, not deceived and enslaved, but free. See, God's natural creation, the natural world, he has built in some incredible examples of transformation, right? The one that maybe come, comes to mind most is the caterpillar to a butterfly, right? You have this little worm-like thing. Some of them look like hairy worms, which might be even worse. And then it goes into a cocoon, it goes through this process, and it comes out 
I mean, maybe it's an ugly moth, but right, the, the picture's often this beautiful butterfly. And yet, there's no natural phenomenon that even comes close to depicting the transformation that happens spiritually when a sinner passes from death to life. It's not so much like a butterfly or a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. It's more like Lazarus coming out of the tomb where you have this dead, rotting corpse that all of a sudden walks out and lives again. He blesses us immensely by transforming us. And the remembering of this transformation that is by his grace is the grounds for humility towards all men. It's remembering that. It's remembering verses 3 through 7 that enables us to live verses 1 and 2 of all humility towards all men. You see, when we see this of ourselves, that there's nothing worth saving, that we are sinners just like everyone else in the world, and that by nothing we did but only by his grace, he loved us deeply, generously, undeservingly, and made us heirs of eternal life. When we see that and remember that, we can't possibly look at another sinner and that be flattering to us at all. Jonathan Edwards once said, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. There's nothing worth worth boasting about in the gospel. That's why by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your undoing, it's a gift of God, so that no one may boast. It makes no sense to be a boastful Christian. And Jesus teaches us, and I just want to read one of Jesus' parables as a means of illustrating the insensibility of pride towards non-believers as a Christian. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells this parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant, likewise, fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should be pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. The most illogical type of person in this world is a prideful Christian. From that, Paul reminds Titus of his task in verses 8 through 11. This is a trustworthy saying, 
And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. He begins with, this is a trustworthy saying. What, what is the saying? What's this saying that's trustworthy? Well, it's all of verses 4 through 7, which in the Greek is one sentence. The main verb being, he saved us. That's the saying, he saved us by his grace. It's the gospel. It's the sound doctrine. It's the truth that leads to godliness. This is a phrase, this, a trustworthy saying that Paul uses a couple times in his pastoral epistles, like to Timothy. One of the most famous being 1 Timothy 1.15 where he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's another way of saying that trustworthy saying. And what it being trustworthy means, we see, is it's deserving of full acceptance. It's absolutely true and deserving of all men to accept. Not that they do, but that's what it's worth. Now, in light of this trustworthiness of the gospel, Titus is to do two things, and these should sound familiar from the rest of the book of Titus. Firstly, is to insist on the gospel and the sound doctrine. Told firmly to it. He says, and I want you to stress these things. Stress means to insist, to emphasize, that Titus should be a constantly ringing bell of the gospel. He saved us. He saved us by his grace, by his grace, over and over again. If people think Titus, they think, oh, that's a guy who talks about the gospel all the time. He stresses those things. Not all ought to be us as well, what we should be known for. He also gives the reason for why he should stress these things. He says, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. If you're sitting here and you want to change, you see how you are and you're like, man, I still see some of that verse 3 in my life and I want to live more like Christ, then insist on this. On my own, I am a worthless sinner, but because of his grace, he saved me, transforms me, delights in me, and will make me an heir who inherits eternal life. If we insist on that, if we preach that to ourselves, if we preach that constantly to each other, that will, that's the truth that leads to godliness. That will produce the good fruit in our lives. That's the key to change. He also talks about the nature, which is just that of this teaching. He says, these things, this trustworthy saying, this gospel, are excellent and profitable for everyone. For everyone. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 70 years or 70 seconds. This saying, this message, is excellent and profitable for you. The gospel never stops being relevant for you. His grace never stops teaching you. You never no longer need the reminders. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. That's his first task. Insist, stress the gospel. Secondly, stress sound doctrine. And secondly, avoid unsound doctrine. Verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. 
is to avoid it. Stay away from the stuff that's not excellent in process. Stay away from the stuff that distracts from the thing that you're supposed to be stressing. For Titus, this was right, largely these Jewish speculations and controversies, um, genealogies, quarrels about Old Testament law, nitpicking of, of things to distract from what the main idea was of the gospel. They were speculation. They were kind of these spiritual conspiracy theories. That happens today, maybe in different ways. It might be different end times conspiracies of, oh, well, have you thought about this one word here and what it means and, and see this news story I saw here and how all this stuff is coming together and you might miss it. And, you know, if, if you're a Christian, you don't know this one little tidbit of truth, you might, you might miss being saved in the end. Or a prosperity gospel which says, focus on being healthy and wealthy and happy and just give to this or give to that or have this sort of faith so that you can do whatever you want. That distracts from the gospel. That's about what can I do for myself, not what God is doing in me. So there's an avoiding of these things. And he also gives the reason for this. He says, because these are unprofitable and useless. These are not the truth that leads to godliness, but the untruths that don't lead to godliness, that produce nothing good. You might wonder, how do we discern between the sound doctrine and the unsound doctrine? There's a couple questions to ask based on this, because the sound doctrine produce is excellent and profitable, and the unsound doctrine is unprofitable and useless. And so consider, does the teaching motivate you to good works or to sin, or at best just not caring at all? Because a good doctrine leads to godliness and motivates us to godly living. Does it bring clarity and understanding? Or does it stir up confusion and uncertainty? Well, I, I thought I knew the gospel, but now with this, well, this thing, this person on the sides here saying, I don't even know at all what's true. Does it magnify Christ? Does it glorify him and magnify the grace of God? Or does it show off that person's wisdom? Does it elevate human wisdom and self-righteousness or the grace and mercy and love of God? These are just a couple. You can go on and on. But the fruits of the unsound doctrine versus the sound doctrine. Then Paul instructs Titus how to deal with the people who kind of teach or embody or advocate for these unsound teachings, these genealogies and quarrels about the law and various unhelpful arguments. He says, warn a divisive person once, then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Now, what I think is neat about this instruction is that he protects against two dangers. One is that... Um, <clears throat> Some of us can have a tendency to just jump in and be like, yeah, let's, you know, oust the heretics, or let's, you know, let's, let's kind of go on this witch hunt and this eagerness to kind of prove I'm right and kick people out and, and protect the truth. But that's not the aim here. He says, warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. Again, we see it's aimed at restoration, at them coming to know the truth, not just booting people left and right. We saw that with the rebuke them sharply. Why? So that they may... Return to the sound doctrine. And yet there's another fear that can happen when we're told to like, hey, protect doctrine, warn people who are straying and who are leading others astray. We can be like, I'm worried if I do that, 
I might become the divisive person. I might feel, I don't know if I want to confront these things because if I do, I might stir up the division. And, and then what if I'm the one who's actually at fault? And what if I'm the one then being judgmental? But he says, you may be sure that such a man, if he's rejected the warnings, the gentle warnings, he is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. That's not on you. If you do it with gentleness and an eagerness to actually restore him and help him and he refuses, that's not on your conscience. So there's a warning to the overly eager and a comfort and encouragement to the hesitant. Then lastly to close, and I'll be brief here. Paul reminds Titus of his care for him. He first says, hey, help is on the way. As soon as I said, Art, and send Artemis or Tychicus to you. See, he left him in Crete to do this difficult work, but he said, I'm not leaving you alone. There's help on the way. This is a temporary assignment, but it's important. Secondly, Paul wants to see him again. He didn't leave him there and say, like, see ya, I'll leave you with the hard work and hope you make it out alive. He says, when they come, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I've decided to winter there. I value you. I want to see you again. I want you to continue to work alongside me for the gospel. Then he expresses his care for other missionaries to do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Zenos and Apollos are likely the ones who brought this letter to Titus on their way through Crete. And he tells them to invite the, the, the Cretan church to help support them as well. He says, Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. And then he ends with his greeting. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. And he ends with this phrase. Grace be with you all. There's a lot of work for Titus and the church in Crete to do. They've got to appoint elders. They've got to protect sound doctrine. They've got to live in accord with the gospel. And all those are things we have to do today. Our church appoints elders. We're responsible for protecting and preaching to each other the gospel, the good news, encouraging others, stirring each other up to good works. And so it's fitting with this difficult task that Paul ends with a a benediction of grace grace be with you all, because it's only by the grace of God that they have any hope for accomplishing these tasks. It's only by the grace of God we have any hope as well. If we want to thrive as a church and as individuals who reflect Christ to each other, to the, to reflect Christ to each other, reflect Christ to the world, and to be those who inherit eternal life, we must stress the trustworthy saying, he saved us, and it's by his grace. Grace be with you all.